Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll examine the curious case of DEFRA's missing environmental principles statement, the justifications underpinning a planned new coal mine in Cumbria, the fate of the UK's huge volumes of plastic waste, and then Jamie will have some kind of impossible quiz up his sleeve to embarrass me and Tess with. Following that, Jamie and I are going to take a deep dive into England's bathing waters, which is really not as pleasant as it sounds, and then the chemical brothers, Simon and Gareth, they're going to be along to make you think twice before applying your cosmetics. There are nasty chemicals hiding therein. So, without further ado, let's get into the eco-chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and I'm here, as usual, with our editor, Jamie Carpenter. Hello. And journalist, Tess Colley. Hello. First up, we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight. Our first story is about how DEFRA intends to embed five internationally recognised environmental principles in UK law. Now we're no longer bound by the EU's environmental rules. There are five rules. Two of those rules are pretty important for the environment. Well, they all are, but the ones that are most contentious are the polluter pays principle, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's that those people or organisations who damage the environment should be made responsible for mitigation or compensation. And then the precautionary principle, this is the one that says where there are threats of serious environmental harm, you shouldn't be allowed to use as an excuse the lack of full scientific certainty to carry on with that activity. So you shouldn't be able to say, well, we can put this chemical in the environment because there is no evidence that it is harmful, for example, because there is no evidence at all in either way. So these are pretty contentious. And the principles are laid out in the Environment Act 2021, but it points to a statement, a policy statement about how they should be applied. That hasn't appeared. So back in March, Tess, can you tell us what happened in March and then bring us up to speed? Yes, so in March, the government put out the consultation for its environmental targets, which have been controversial for all sorts of reasons uh, to do with the targets themselves. But also they brought into relief the fact that this statement that you talk about, the principal statement, has not come out. These targets are supposed to be made in line with these these principles that you talk about. However, this policy statement hasn't emerged. And the question now being asked is, well, how can you have set these targets without this the statement that everyone has seen. The policy statement on principles went out for consultation last year. It closed in June. It was government said they'd respond in 12 weeks. We're now, I think, 10 months, possibly 11 uh, on from that and nothing. And yeah, alarms are being raised increasingly frequently. Caroline Lucas, the Green MP last week, saying, you know, DEFRA was running scared and the NGOs are starting to really ramp up efforts there. Yeah, because I think in this draft statement that that DEFRA put out, it says that policymakers should pay due regard uh, to the principles when they're making new policies. But that's much weaker than it has has been in the past. And people say, well, this, that's too vague. And mm. uh, these principles should be underpinning policy, not just being like an, an afterthought, which is yeah. where this puts them. Well, yeah. So that yeah, like yeah. So is the fact that what the government put into the Environment Act was weaker in the first place? Yeah. Like the due regard when we were in the EU, it was much stronger, and it it was written into you know various treaties and was meant to underpin not just policy making but kind of legal. Um, legislation and executive decisions. So this is already much weaker. But then on top of that, we haven't even seen the weaker version, apparently not having this statement in place to be made upon. But there's one one source at NGO said to me, well, it's, it's the other departments where we could really see the value 
here, you know, outside of DEFRA, if they're putting in environmental principles, that could be really valuable. We just don't have it. Yeah. Now, does anybody have any ideas, looking at you, Jamie, why the government might not want to get these uh, principles out there? Whether the draft is out there, we know what everyone thinks about them. They're mainly not happy. But why might they be a little bit coy about coming out with the final version? Well, the um, I mean, with the precautionary principle, for example, that there, there's, that has been contentious for for a long a long time now and, and I, th- I think there, there'll be people within business that might might see that as an, an obstacle that that might might kind of slow house building plans that that kind of thing and and, and it might also so this might be reflective of that the, the other thing is that there are sort of some signs that within government not not everyone's on the on the same page on on this sort of thing anyone in particular Jacob Rees-Mogg was speaking at um, a committee inquiry, and and was uh, he 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 basically kind of mocked the precautionary principle. So he he was saying, if you follow the precautionary principle to its logical extent, we would never go into our kitchens or our bathrooms, which I believe are the most dangerous places in our houses, let alone ever walk up or down our own staircases. In which case, we would never get outside the front door. I don't think it's a sensible way to live one's life. Mm-hmm. So that was that was Rees-Mogg on on. I think it was telling in that in that meeting that everybody seemed to be on the same side. It didn't, you know, it's a scrutiny committee, I think, and but yet they all seemed to be on the same side. And the MP that asked the question, he asked it, and it, the way it was framed was quite interesting because he asked whether civil servants could be shaken away from the precautionary principle as easily as you may hope. Which it's you know it's, it's, like it's been <laughs> been teed up, doesn't it? Yeah. But I mean, it is, it is complete nonsense that I think the, these these kind of analogies with with the. Uh, with with a household is just is 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 a bit like with the credit crunch and austerity and things were compared to household finances and it's like mm. you can't really compare the precautionary principle to risks around the house because to me there's not really any uncertainty around the fact that if you you leave your gas oven on or you walk down your stairs with your shoelaces untied you might actually end up killing yourself and <laughs> I mean, I, I, to me I think really a world with the precautionary principle in it means that it's actually safer to step outside your front door than a world without it. So the environmental policy statement is missing and for a long time as Tess mentioned the environmental targets that DEFRA plans to set has been missing but they came out at the end of last week. Um, Tess can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah well some of them came out at the end of last week. Uh, yeah, so when the, when this targets consultation came out, they said they'd come out with all this evidence reports, impact assessments, underlying, underpinning all the proposals they were making, DEFRA that is. Last week we finally got, and this is about seven weeks into what was supposed to be an eight-week consultation, so really pushing it there. They've, they've published evidence reports on by lots of various types of biodiversity, marine, terrestrial and freshwater, they say, uh, as well as on uh, waste, but still nothing on air or water quality. Mm. But having had a look you know, at the biodiversity uh, evidence, it does seem to me to be a real gap in the species uh, abundance indicator, which is the metric by which government plans to measure targets like to halt the decline of, of, of species by 2030, you know, one of these really big ones. The only freshwater species they're going to be measuring will be uh, a type of invertebrate no no fish and there's also apparently uh, no no not going to be measuring bee numbers bees bees everybody knows that bees they're are so, in a, they're in the peril. most high profile of the insects i would say i i spoke to the chief executive of bug life about this last week and you know he couldn't believe it basically he he could, couldn't really understand why that would be the case we do measure bees because the biodiversity indicators yeah, yeah. it's quite an odd decision and you know there there are you know no no fungi going to be measured and that's massive bees fish and a complete lack of fungi complete absence of fungi there's also big discrepancies between north and south kind of 
habitats to be to be assessed much you know much more representative of the south than the north of England. Really? Yep. Mm. So That's healthy for the north south. I know, divide, isn't it? I know. Not much levelling up going on there, is there? Yeah, no. <laughs> levelling down. So, and that's just the biodiversity ones, and there's still much to come out. Air and air and water, mm. um, big yeah. topics, really controversial mm. topics, and they've decided not to add those yet. As of this morning, uh, they still haven't extended the end date on the consultation, right. which they've said they are going to do repeatedly, and even says it now on the website. But the date is still the 11th of May, which is next week. Hmm. Well, they're watching. Everyone's watching. So they're going to have to do something about it soon. Um, we're at Energy Report. We're yet to dig into these documents in detail ourselves. So we'll be doing that in the coming days. So keep an eye out on EnergyReport.com and the next episode of the Eco Chamber because there's much more on this to come. Our second story is about a planned new coal mine for Cumbria. The West Cumbria Mining Company wants to build what it describes as the world's first net zero underground coal mine, which sounds a little bit implausible. It would be to a former industrial site in Whitehaven. But set in the context of accelerating climate change, of having to meet carbon budgets and the Paris Agreement, it seems a bit potty to be even considering new coal, but apparently not. According to The Telegraph, Michael Gove, who is the housing secretary now, he is poised to approve it. This sounds a little bit strange. Jamie, can you fill us in on, on where we are with this? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, this, this is a, a really long running planning saga, which I think probably in part reflects the level of controversy around the application it was it the the application had been approved by Cumbria County Council in 2019 um, but it was then called in by the Secretary of State who was Robert Jenrick remember, remember yes. him yeah, um, yeah. So <laughs> basically Fondly. well yeah <laughs> um, basically when an application is called in that means that the Secretary of State decides the application rather than the local authority so so where we're at now is that the new Secretary of State Michael Gove is about to make a decision. He's he's got the report from the planning inspector who carried out the public inquiry, and these reports um, in the Telegraph are suggesting that it may go ahead. It's slightly intriguing though. The these the, the report is attributed to senior Conservative sources who gave a slightly strange quote, which which was, "I don't know for certain, but I get the impression he is going to approve it." <laughs> <laughs> mm, it's um, not the most solid of uh, basis on which to put a new story, but you never know. Telegraph do have some good contacts. Who, who are we to judge? Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it might, yeah. so it might all be a storm, <laughs> storm and teacup. Yeah. But um, it's just, it's, it has it's provoked this this kind of an immediate response from green groups who are it's kind of safe to say are completely horrified by the prospect, and they've written a letter to to Gove asking that he refuses permission for what they're describing as a climate wrecking development. What I find really interesting is that some of the justifications for the mine have been completely undermined. If you'll pardon the pun, um, by the people who 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 know better, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so that's um, in the Guardian. The comments being reported uh, from Chris McDonald, who's the chief executive of the Materials Processing Institute, and you know, so a big part of the steel producing uh, industry in the UK. And he has said uh, there's no real case for producing this kind of coal uh, from this mine because no one no one in the UK is going to buy it. He says that it's the it's the coal industry making this argument, not the steel industry. He says that you know, there are only two potential customers uh, for this coking coal in the UK, Tata Steel and British Steel. British Steel, he says, has said they can't use the coal from the mine because the sulphur levels are too high. And Tata Steel has said if the coal were available, then they may or may not use a small amount. That's what he said. The actual companies haven't confirmed this. Yeah. Um, but that this is what it seems to be being said. Yeah. So the, the two justifications are the one that we need this type of coking coal for our steel industry. Mm. 
And he's just wiped that out, if that is correct. And the other one is that we need to be, you know, we need to be have some sort of security here. So we don't need to be buying this coking coal from Russia, um, you know, in the context of the Putin's invasion and something. But is that... <laughs> Is, does that hold water? Um, no. No. <laughs> no I think, basically, I think the eight, more than eighty percent of the coal produced will be be shipped abroad. So right. It doesn't really um, doesn't really work. So, and I, I think the the other thing around um, the, the this, this thing around the use of coking coal in steel making is is that the kind of future of that is thought to be in doubt anyway. So, the climate change committee has said that by 2035 its use could be displaced entirely mm -hmm. so okay this, yes not really much long-term planning going on so i think michael gove has until the 7th of july to make his final decision but apparently it could come a little bit earlier according to reports we will keep our eye on it and bring you the developments as they happen so our final story on big green news is about plastic waste so last month, Environment Agency Chief Executive Sir James Bevan, he called for a complete ban on waste exports because he said it would help them tackle environmental crime related to waste. He said there'd be less scope for criminals to send hazardous or misdescribed waste overseas and the resulting need to manage all our waste at home would drive more cycling, more innovation and more business in the UK. But we are a long way from that position. So analysis by the ENDS report, it was Pippa Neal to be specific, showed that last year the UK sent a massive 469,400 five tonnes of plastic waste abroad. Jamie, where's it all going? Well, what, what the data is showing is that Turkey is is our number one destination for plastic waste. But if you you look at the figures more closely, there's, there's some interesting things going on. So exports to Turkey are actually dropping a bit. So they're down a bit compared to 2020. And they're actually kind of... Um, the kind of flows of plastic waste to other countries, most most notably Poland and the Netherlands, are, are going up. So, wasn't there a move to stop sending waste to non OECD countries? Where are we with that? So, the that was something that was in the Conservative manifesto, yes. um, and the uh, the Environment Act has some provisions in it that would allow the government to put in place a, a plastic waste export ban to non OECD countries. But that's subject to further consultation, and there's this this. Um, interesting is it another one of those vanishing policies <laughs> it could it could be yeah. um but there's there's a there's a there's a kind of fun my ban is bigger than your ban kind of row with the um <laughs> the eu so so the eu's actually already brought in a, a ban on unsorted plastic waste to non-OECD non countries, but, but the UK government said its, its ban is going to be bigger and better than that, even though it's not... Of course it is. <laughs> world leading. World, world leading, beating. world beating, yeah, all of no those doubt. things, yeah. Fantastic. And this is all sort of, there's been a bit of a domino effect since China shut its stores to plastic imports, isn't it, from, from the UK and elsewhere. Uh, where is left? I mean, are, are, the, are the markets that are still receiving our waste diminishing all the time? I mean, where's it going to end up? Well, I think I think it's it's looking very different now. So, so as you say, for a long time, China was our number one plastic waste export destination. It put the shutters up in 2018 and, and the numbers dropped off a cliff. Then then it was Malaysia who became, I suppose, a kind of ground zero for plastic waste. And then it, then it announced restrictions. So you're seeing this kind of, it's like a domino effect. Now now Turkey's the big one. Yeah. I mean, I think I think down the line there is there is a um, a plastic waste treaty, like a kind of a Montreal protocol for plastics that's being, being worked towards. So I think earlier this year there was 175 nations signed off on this resolution that should be in place by 2024. So that might drive further. But the resolution action. won't be in place until 2024. Exactly. Is that right? yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a, a way off. But it is good news and it's nice to bring some good news into the eco chamber. We often don't bother with the good news, but I've brought a, an, an extra piece. There was a paper in uh, Nature 
recently that showed that a team of researchers at the University of Texas say they've been able to use a mutant enzyme to break down polyethylene terephthalate, which PET, which is used in making plastic bottles. They've known for quite a while that this enzyme can do that, but it was limited because of uh, it, it couldn't tolerate certain pHs and certain temperatures, and it was very, very slow. But they've managed to, using artificial intelligence, find key mutations that, that improve its, uh, the way it breaks it down. So they think that this could work at an industrial scale and could take out tons and tons of uh, plastic from landfill. So there's some good news. And mm. let's keep an eye on that one. So not all doom and gloom here on the eco chamber, but it might be coming because Jamie's got a quiz and Tess <laughs> and I are going to sit here in silence, uh, staring uh, blankly uh, as our brains just sort of whir through. Anyway, Jamie, what, what have you got for us? Well, th- this one is about air pollution. Okay. Specifically, that there's there's a um, a, a new tool that was launched um, at the end of last week called Address Pollution, which has been set up by a, a body called the Central Body of Public Interest. So, um, and this has got a fair bit of coverage in national media. And the main headline is that more than ninety seven percent of addresses in the UK exceed World Health Organization limits for at least one of three key air pollutants. So that these are PM two point five, PM ten, and NO two. Nitrogen dioxide. Yes. Particulate so, matter. Did you say particulate matter? I, well, I said PM, but pa- yeah, it's pa- particulate matter. It, yeah, <laughs> so what this um, website allows you to do is you can enter your postcode into the into the website, which is addresspollution.org, and this tool will tell you how bad your air pollution is um, and how many of these World Health Organization limits are exceeded in your area and what percentile your address falls into. So kind of how how bad it is relative to everywhere else so please don't let it be about percentiles <laughs> is it it's not gonna be oh, no 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 I won't, I, won't, I won't do that to you guys but um so so we I, I plugged in my own postcode so my home which is in surrey kind of just outside london that that actually exceeds all three limits and is in the 87th national percentile which is very high air pollution our office where we're sitting in twickenham is even worse so that exceeds all three <laughs> WHO limits. <laughs> and it's in the ninety fourth percentile, which is which is not not great. Got a couple a couple of questions. We still don't have a budget for buzzers, but it doesn't mean we can't try them again. So shall we test our buzzers? Buzz ding! I had a bell. <laughs> buzzers and bells. Yeah. <laughs> Next time we might have real buzzers and bells, but we'll see. So now we now we tested our buzzers and bells. The question is, which place in Britain is the worst for air pollution? And that means the place that has the highest proportion of homes in the top 10 most polluted nationally. Can I just... <laughs> oh, my God, I was going to ask a question, but she's already got the answer. Go, go, Tess. Well, I mean, is it London? It's got to be London. It's not London, actually, oh. which is surprising. Oh, I was going to suggest Marylebone High Street, because that usually has quite high, mm. thing, uh, high mm, pollution. Um, so a whole city or a... It's a city or a town. Okay. Ding, Middlesbrough. It's not Middlesbrough. Uh, Buzz, Birmingham. I'm afraid it's not Birmingham. Ding, this could go on for a long time. It could go on for a long time. Um, Hartlepool. It's not Hartlepool. Ding, is it in the southwest again? When, when you don't, never think they are and they turn up to be in yeah. the southwest? No, it's, oh. in, it's in the southeast. Southeast. Okay. Oh. Is, not... is it a city or a town? It's a town. Oh. Ding, not north? Okay, no, I, that's a county. No, I don't. No. A bit more, cl- many more clues. Um, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> the office would film there. Slough, oh, buzz. Oh, great. <laughs> so oh, unbelievably, of course it's Slough. Slough, yeah. 90% of the homes in Slough are in the top 10 most polluted, top 10% most polluted nationally. That's terrible. Really not good. So London was second, then it was Portsmouth, followed by Salford, Leeds and then Manchester. So is it related to density as well? As yeah, I think yeah. it is. So I think I think the interesting thing about, I find this interesting because when, when we did our Clean Cities Index, we, we really struggled to find a, 
a, a way to sort of measure air pollution fairly between areas. And the way they've done this is looking at, I suppose, effectively the, the proportion of homes that are exposed to high levels, which is quite a good way of doing it, because really air pollution matters the most when people are exposed to it. I've got, I've got one more. I thought we could do higher, higher or lower now. Um, so I've picked some national landmarks, whether you can guess whether the pollution is higher or lower. So if we will start off with Stonehenge, which unbelievably does actually exceed one World Health Organization limit for PM2.5, but it does have low pollution. It's in the 18th national percentile. So is the Angel of the North higher or lower? Higher, lower. It is higher. So it exceeds two limits and is in the 26th national percentile. Is Blackpool Tower higher or lower? Than, than Angel of the North. Higher. higher. It is only just higher. It, it's the same percentile, but exceeds three limits rather than two. And then the final one is, is Brighton Pier higher or lower than Blackpool Tower? Lower. Lower? It's higher. Oh. oh. So it actually exceeds three World Health Organization limits and is in the 68th national percentile. Mm, interesting. Thank you very much. That wraps up. The that big... brings us back down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Too much good news. Yes, yeah, right. So there, we're all choking to death. So that brings us to the end of the big green news section. Thank you very much, Tess. Thank you, Jamie. And we need to move on now to our deep dive. Next up is our deep dive section. In this episode, Jamie and I are looking at England's bathing waters. We've spoken a lot about water pollution on the eco chamber because our rivers, lakes and seas are in a horrible condition. They suffer from all kinds of contamination from sewage, from farms, cities and industrial pollution and more. So recently we reported the new figures that were provided to the Environment Agency from the water companies. They said that they dumped raw sewage into rivers and coasts last year 372,533 times and that was for more than 2 million hours. Even then we know this is a massive underrepresentation of the real amount because Many, many spills are not reported, not all of the outfalls are monitored, and a spill that lasts for weeks can be counted as just one. Again, there's lots and lots of this on the ENDS report if you want to go and take a look, but over the weekend, the Lib Dems released a new analysis of that data showing how sewage discharges were affecting bathing waters. Jamie, can you tell us about that? I, th- I think, I think, like Tess said last last time round, we're, we're unfortunately we're we're kind of top of the poops, not just the we are top of the, <laughs> the website. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, I think this this analysis from the Lib, Dem- Lib Dems was taken from the top of the poops website, and it shows that water companies released raw, raw sewage twenty five thousand times into designated bathing waters off the English coast in twenty twenty one for more than one hundred and sixty thousand hours and that's where you're supposed to go swimming let yes. alone the places you are exactly exactly and it does it does seem to kind of present a little bit of a different picture to defra's summary of the latest official bathing stats which came out earlier this year what are they saying well they, they were saying that um 99 of bathing waters in england had passed water quality standards 94.7 mm. percent of beaches and inland waters were excellent or good and 4.3 percent were sufficient and that was slightly up on 2019 when there was the kind of previous proper round of data and and the highest number since new standards were introduced in 2015. So DEFRA says it's all good. Yes. Well, we know why that is, don't we? Because they, the Environment Agency, uh, sponsored by DEFRA, obviously, monitors bathing waters, but it only, what constitutes monitoring, it doesn't really instill much confidence because during the bathing water season, which is made to September, they, they will test a site a couple of times and they only test for two kinds of bacteria. 
So obviously you're going to miss huge pollution incidents if you only do it a few times. And obviously there are lots more things to be worried about than just those two bacteria. There are lots of bacteria and then there's all the industrial chemicals and that we've been talking about anyway. So there's lots to be worried about. So if you if you started measuring for those, I can't imagine that any would, would pass what the kind of person on the street would think to be acceptable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there are kind of several flaws with the testing regime. So there's the, 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 the those those things that you mentioned there, but there's also this, um, there's, a, there's a kind of mechanism that allows the, the regulator to discount the worst results. Mm-hmm. So if, if DEFRA's pollution risk forecast system warns of predictable pollution driven by heavy rain or high tides, then then those samples can be excluded because they are not reflective of the usual conditions that bathers like to experience. And mm. that means that a maximum of 15% of samples can be ignored in that way. And, and um, campaigners don't really like that very much. No, completely discounted. So they will only test the water that they know is not polluted and then <laughs> report on that. It just, none of this makes any sense. And it's something that campaigners like Surfers Against Sewage have been railing about for a really, really long time. And, and just because, well, as we've pointed out, because the site's designated a bathing water, it doesn't mean that it's in good nick. And the reason, so some campaigners have, have hooked onto this idea and they've seen that that maybe in their area there's a site where people are swimming regularly and they're, they're worried about it because they think that it's polluted and they but they can't get the environment agency to actually monitor that water unless it's designated as a bathing site. So they're using that as a mechanism to get the site designated and then forcing the environment agency to check the water afterwards, which is a really good uh, a really good way of doing it. And that's happened in Ilkley and it's happened in Oxford in the, on the Thames. But I think that, again, that's still only going to test two, two types of bacteria and not, not very often. Yeah, and well, it was interesting with the, the River Wharf in Ilkley that when, when it did actually become designated, the, um, the, the, the figures were absolutely shocking. So I think it was um, the monitoring showed that it's actually regularly awash with very high levels of harmful bacteria and is actually the most polluted bathing spot in the whole of England. <laughs> that is a good title to have. But it, there aren't that many, there are only two river bathing water sites. And so those two that we've just mentioned, haven't we, compared to many in France. How many are there in France? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the UK compares really poorly in terms of the, these inland um, waters. So, you, so you've got, you've got some, you've got a a few so there's places like the Serpentine in Hyde Park and Hampstead Heath the the, the, the kind of baths there and, and then the, these two rivers so the um, places one is this Wolvercote Mill stream in Oxford but when you look at European countries you you they have masses of designated freshwater sites so if you look at like Netherlands they've got 33 rivers and 668 lakes France 573 rivers and more than a thousand lakes so they, they're completely different um different kettle of fish for one of a that's a water-related <laughs> comparison. Yeah, but there is, but there is. I think to be fair, that we have to say that there is a lot of work going on now um, to try to improve matters. Whether it's enough is a is a completely different question. But there is a lot going on. So, if we look at what what the regulators are doing now, they've kind of been bounced into or embarrassed into um, opening a an investigation into the water companies, so Environment Agency and Offwat, both investigating um, sewage spills from water firms. But that was after the water firms put their hands up and said, actually, yeah, you know, we probably are discharging lots more raw sewage than, we're, <laughs> than we said we were, because um, I think they could feel the heat. There's a sto- storm overflows task force that has been put together by DEFRA, although green groups don't like it because it's mainly comprised of the water companies and regulators who, who should have sorted it out decades ago. There's a consultation on tackling sewage from combined sewer overflows, which are the pipes where the, most of this untreated stuff comes out from. And then there are clauses in the Environment Act uh, forcing the government to create plans to reduce uh, sewage discharges and trying to get water companies to be more transparent about when uh, they are spilling. 
Um, but is it going to be enough? Well, uh, yeah, so, so, so this is a burning question. I mean, mm. I, th- I think the I think the issue around data is really interesting. So the, the idea of being more transparent is is a good one. But I think the thing that, that kind of really strikes me when you look at all these figures is is the is what they what they don't show you. So so you have the we know with the um, Environment Agency's Event Duration Monitoring, the EDM data, which is showing the the spills that that that's there's a load of stuff that's being discharged that doesn't show up in that. Um, the bathing water stats, the part part of, I think the the reason that there was a, they, they the main reason that they showed an improvement between from 2019 to 2021 was actually that there were three bathing sites that were were poor in 2019 that were subsequently de-designated yeah. so they don't actually need to be monitored anymore. But the higher percentage passed this last year, <laughs> didn't they? It's strange that. Yeah. 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 There's also kind of really, really curious. So, so I think um, during the pandemic, the UK was, we were still kind of part of the European Environment Agency's monitoring reports. We, we were the worst in the whole of the EU, whole of Europe, and and that was because dirty old man's back, dirty old man's back. Mm. But actually, the environment agency just stopped stopped monitoring for a year, <laughs> whereas pretty much everyone else carried on doing so. So although it wasn't it wasn't actually true to say that we were worse compared to some of the other nations, that there, there's a kind of maybe there's a different kind of attitude towards these things these things here. And actually, even before that, we we weren't doing that well. I think we were 25th out of 31 nations, which is not really much to be proud of. Yeah. And when it comes to the environmental targets that we were talking about in Big Green News, there's a there are water targets that are supposed to more or less replace those in the Water Framework Directive, which is the EU legislation. But they haven't really replaced it with a big sort of big overall target for improvement. Instead, it's put out a couple of sector-based short-term targets and a demand reduction goal. Um, so it, it plans to reduce nitrogen, phosphorus and sediment pollution from agriculture to the water environment by 40% by 2037. And then the water sector is supposed to reduce phosphorus loadings by 80% by 2037 against a 2020 baseline. But that doesn't include sewage discharge by combined sewer overflows. So there's lots going on. But meanwhile, the sewage continues to flow and wild swimmers everywhere are preparing for the plunge. Let's hope we can all have rivers fit to swim in sometime soon. That brings us to the end of our deep dive section. And now it's time for the Chemical Brothers. Thanks, Rachel. This week, we're talking about microplastics and cosmetics. It's a pretty well-known issue in the UK, and it's one that actually regulators have acted on, partly in response to widespread media coverage. But the issue's far from resolved. Hang on, didn't the UK government announce a ban on intentionally added microplastics back in, what was it, 2018? For, let me see, shower gels, face scrubs, toothpastes? Yeah, it did, it did. Um, But part part of the issue now is that we're seeing some criticism of the fact that the ban doesn't go that far, and there's calls basically to expand the scope of the regulation to cover more kinds of products and more kinds of plastic. Yeah, it was touted as being world leading, but that was a bit of a dubious claim, I remember. <laughs> uh, well, in, in, in fairness, it, it came in before any kind of ban happened in the EU, which is interesting, particularly because a lot of the scrutiny happening around cosmetics and microplastics is coming from EU countries and particularly Germany. So I covered last year a study commissioned by Greenpeace, the German branch of Greenpeace, uh, looked at about 660 cosmetic products. So we're talking about things like makeup, lip gloss, mascara, all kinds of stuff that you could pick up in your local pharmacy. And of those 660 products, around 502 
contained plastic. That's a pretty high proportion. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much maybe what you would expect either. Of those, only about a quarter were the kind of intentionally added microbeads that are covered by the UK's legislation. Most of the rest were kinds of polymers, which you maybe wouldn't necessarily even think of as being plastic. Yeah, so what what exactly is plastic in this context. I mean, uh, when I think microbeads, I'm thinking polystyrene, PET, nylon, so on and so forth. Yeah, so 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 this is expanding the definition of plastic beyond your PET and your polystyrene and the kinds of plastic you might, might be more familiar with. These are water-soluble. They're, they're used in cosmetics for all kinds of properties. They're, they're used as a stabilizer. They've got foaming functions, for instance, and uh, the issue is that they basically don't biodegrade, or hardly any of them biodegrade. The Greenpeace Germany study highlights the fact that we don't know an awful lot about actually what happens to these plastics when they enter the environment. It does give the example of polyacrylamide. That's used as a stabiliser, and it's totally safe when it's used in cosmetics on the whole, I mean, as far as we're aware. The problem is there's some evidence that it can degrade in the environment into just plain old acrylamide, and that in itself is, an, is a carcinogen. It can also form from cooking some foods, can mm, Yeah, it? actually from overcooking potatoes. So what, what's, the, what's the problem here? The problem is basically the, the lack of biodegradability of the stuff. One of the things that can then happen is they enter the environment and they can get ionised, and that then attracts a bunch of other hazardous chemicals to sort of sit with them. In, in clusters that can then be ingested. Making them sort of the snowball of ugliness. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So we're all pretty familiar with the environmental implications of microplastics. I've covered over the years many stories about how they turn up in uh, treated sewage sludge or simply escape sewage treatment entirely and flow into the rivers and seas where they can persist for an awfully long time. Um, they've even been found at the bottom of the Mariana Trench of all places. I mean, the interesting thing was on, on the European side, I wouldn't generally recommend that people go and they read restriction proposals from the European Chemicals Agency. They're but... 500 pages long for a start. <laughs> does, it does have some interesting stuff in here about estimates for how much microplastic ends up in the environment. And they estimate something around 80% of the, of the plastic, microplastic content of cosmetics that ends up either directly going into the ocean through sewage treatment plants or through sludge from sewage that's then applied to fields. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite mad. It's quite mad. Yeah, and in fact, another German green group in Nabu published a study in 2018. Liquid polymer compounds, so those are the kinds we're talking about here, were the majority of the plastic pollution that came from cosmetics and cleaning products. That was, that was a study based on German wastewater. Yeah, so you can imagine it's be the same or broadly similar here. You'd, yeah. you'd expect so, yeah. yeah. So in the UK, there's uh, there's not much science, as far as I'm aware, on a broader restriction due to turmoil in the uh, UK uh, REACH uh, regime. So what's going on in the EU? So as we as we discussed, UK introduces in 2018 this ban on... Intentionally added intentionally microplastics. Added microplastics. The EU is a little bit uh, late to act on this. So in 2018, we had a restriction proposal from the European Chemicals Agency. The advantage is it goes some way beyond what the what the UK measure does. And if it, if it gets adopted, and we expect that it would be adopted or by the Commission at the end of the European Commission by the end of this year, it would cover rinse off cosmetics. So those are the kinds banned now in the UK. It would also cover leave on cosmetics. That's stuff like face masks, you know, creams and balms that you're not necessarily washing off. It would also cover detergents, paints, 
farming products, some industrial products. So it would go way beyond That's just those very micro very broad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There is still some contro controversy among health and environment groups, and it's to do with the definition of a micro particle. And basically, they health and environment groups think that it could be defined at a lower bound, so we could have much smaller particles covered by the legislation. European Chemicals Agency disagrees. They say what they propose, which is a minimum of five five micrometers but the i suppose the issue is how if you can't measure the size of a substance size of a thing because it's too small then how do you regulate sure that's so a practical aspect yeah here, exactly so that's kind of the debate is around the practicalities of how small you can how small you can go basically in terms of effectively regulating microplastics i mean they want to go green environment groups want to go down, down to nanoparticles so really really tiny tiny bits of plastic the the downside of the of the if the EU proposal is that it doesn't cover a bunch of these um, polymers that we're, we're discussing because they're just too small. So uh, any tips on uh, avoiding this stuff in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's an obvious thing that you can do, which is check the ingredients when you're, when you're buying cosmetics. Um, and, you know, you can be looking out for things like carbomer, acrylates of various kinds. Um, Cyclopentosiloxane. <laughs> Say that once more. <laughs> Cyclopentosiloxane. Yeah, yeah, not bad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. Um, you can find lists online. Another thing you can do, um, there's actually a quite quite cool app you can get called Code Check, which was set up by German and UK-based green groups. You can just scan the barcodes for a bunch of products and basically then just see whether any ingredients of concern come up. And one of the categories of, of ingredients that they cover are microplastics and polymers as well. I just went to the supermarket before lunch, had a little look around, did some scanning. Seems to work quite well for the big branded products. It doesn't seem to work so well for the kind of generic products. But yeah, that's maybe worth checking out. Okay, sounds interesting. Thanks, Simon. So that brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to our editor, Jamie Carpenter, and journalist Tess Colley, Gareth Simpkins, and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to engreport.com where you'll find more detail than you could possibly ever need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time. The Eco Chamber was produced by Ade Bambala from Rethink Audio.